Which were you most pleased with, or which stick stick out in your mind? Then? Oddly enough, the best. I thought the two best shows we did. One I wrote, one I didn't write. Uh, one was an original by Dick Matheson called uh, "The Invaders," mm -hmm. and the other was an adaptation of mine, a very free, loose adaptation of a Lucille Fletcher's. I think it was Lucille Fletcher. I could be wrong. A short story called "Time Enough at Last," about a myopic bank teller who at the end at the end of the world breaks his glasses just when he's able to read all that he's ever wanted to read, which was sheer, pure, beautiful irony. And in terms of production values, when I, the adaptation I mentioned was gorgeously done. We used an MGM backlot with existing sets that were already there, and it looked like a movie. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. In the last episode of the Twilight Zone podcast, I read the story by Lynn Venable, that would go on to become one of the most beloved and referenced Twilight Zone episodes of all time. Time enough at last. So if you're listening to this podcast sometime after that release, then the episode is the last one in the podcast stream, or you can find it at the twilightzonepodcast.com in the Twilight Zone specials section. So considering I just read that short story, I'm going to try and keep the synopsis brief, because apart from a few differences... What's in the short story ends up on the screen, basically. I guess the main difference is the whole perspective of it. In the short story, most of Henry Bemis' backstory is told in flashback after the big event, whereas on the television show, it's all linear. So I'll present some trivia as usual, although there's surprisingly not too much about the production of the episode itself. And I'll maybe touch on the more far-reaching aspects of the episode as well, the spoofs and the homages and so on, maybe just mention a few of those. We've also got some audio feedback from a good friend of the show, and I guess I'll mix in my own thoughts about the episode through the synopsis as well. First up, I'll just read you the original opening narration as written by Rod Sailing that wasn't actually used, and then we'll revisit time enough at last. The time is the day after tomorrow. The place is anywhere, so long as it can accommodate a bank, a main street, and a library. Along with a myopic little man named Henry Bemis, who has only one passion in life, and that is to read. Mr. Henry Bemis, conspired against by browbeaters and henpeckers, and by clocks whose hands waggle disapprovingly at him, and always disallow the moments he'd love to use to read what he would. In a moment from now, however, Mr. Bemis will have his chance to read in a world much different from the one he knows. A world without clocks or bank presidents. A world, for that matter, without anyone. Witness Mr. Henry Bemis, a charter member in the fraternity of dreamers. A bookish little man whose passion is the printed page, but who is conspired against by a bank president and a wife and a world full of tongue cluckers and the unrelenting hands of a clock. But in just a moment, Mr. Bemis will enter a world without bank presidents, or wives, or clocks, or anything else. He'll have a world all to himself, without anyone. 
first broadcast on the 20th of November 1959, adapted by Rod Serling from a short story by Lynn Venable and directed by John Brown. So Henry Bemis, small mousy man, obsessed with reading and stories, and when we first meet him he's reading a book as he talks to a customer at work, something that's causing him to make mistakes. Also he's not making a particularly good impression with the boss because he's prone to slipping down into the bank vault to read as well. You, Mr. Bemis, do not function within the organization. You are neither an efficient bank teller nor a proficient employee. You, Mr. Bemis, are a reader. A, a reader? A reader. Yes. A reader of books, magazines, periodicals, newspapers. I see you constantly going downstairs into the vault during your lunch hour. Automatum, Mr. Bemis. Yes, sir. You will henceforth devote your time to your job and forget reading or you'll find yourself outdoors on a park bench reading from morning till night for want of having a job. Do I make myself perfectly clear? And the other obstacle for Henry Bemis being able to read all that he wants is his wife. In the short story, her reluctance to let Henry read is partially because she loved to socialise, also because she loved to watch television but would never want to watch it alone. Henry! Yes, dear, I'm in the living room. You want more coffee or don't you? No, thank you, dear. Well, then why don't you tell me that? And don't sneak off into the living room to bury yourself in newsprint. I think we've been over this quite enough, Henry. I won't tolerate a husband of mine sacrificing the art of conversation. So I'd just like to stop for a moment and discuss this relationship. When we first see the way Henry's wife, Helen, She's now been renamed Helen from Agnes, as she was in the short story. So when we first see Helen speak to him, we immediately think of her as the bad one. All Henry wants to do is read, and at the end of the day, what's wrong with that? It's a healthy pastime, and it's considered a healthy pastime by, you know, pretty much everybody. But, you know, you do have to wonder what came first here. Did Henry just marry a domineering wife? Or when the honeymoon period of their relationship was over, did he just bury himself so much in books that he's neglected her to such a degree that she's come to resent his reading? If she doesn't arrange all these social evenings and so on, would Henry just happily stay squirreled away with a book? In the short story, I guess I'm more inclined to believe that maybe this is the way things happened. But in the Twilight Zone episode, there's a line there where Helen says, I'm not having a husband of mine sacrificing the art of conversation. Which is a little more pointed, I feel, than anything that goes on in the short story. And it makes me instinctively again see her as the bad one in the relationship. And it probably doesn't help that the actress Jacqueline DeWitt has a really stern, schoolmistress type face and demeanour. And then there's a particularly cruel moment where she lulls Henry into thinking she's going to let him read her some poetry. And he's really excited by this, he can't wait to do it and it looks like he's enjoying the fact that he's going to share his passion with his wife. And then when he opens the book he finds that she's defaced every page in it. And then she even goes so far as to tear the pages out of the book right in front of him. I'm more inclined to think that Agnes in the short story may have been driven to try and control Henry because of his neglect of her. While Helen in the episode just thinks that reading is a stupid and childish pastime. I guess we don't really know for sure, but if you look at Henry's conduct in work, 
You know, here's a situation where he's clearly letting his love of reading hinder his ability to do his job. You can't sit at your desk and read when you have to serve customers, and you can't sneak off into the bankrupt vault to read either, but again, we could ask the question, would Henry be like this in work if he was just allowed to read at home? You know, there are no answers, so I guess we can't really say either way for sure, but this does tie into an interesting quote that I'll read later on about why a seemingly good man like Henry Bemis might deserve this cruel fate that the Twilight Zone gives him. And the thing that sets this cruel fate into motion is, of course, the nuclear explosion that wipes out the bank, the city, the country, the world, who knows. Now, the explosion in the bank vault was actually achieved by putting the whole set on springs so they could shake the set and also shake the camera at the same time. And I think it, it works beautifully because it looks, it's a really violent shaking, you know, it's a cut above your average Star Trek episode maybe where you know everyone's sort of falling from side to side as they shake the camera this has a real sort of edge to it this essentially puts the episode into a, a two-act thing I guess we have the the lighter first half and then a much darker second half which before I get to that I will say and this might seem blasphemous to some but up until this point I wasn't totally on board with the episode I knew the outcome of it on this rewatch, but I couldn't quite recall all of the details. It's been a number of years since I last saw it. And I'll always be honest in the podcast if, I, if I'm if i talking about an episode that I don't care for. I don't mind saying that, and even Rod Sailing said that there were bad episodes of The Twilight Zone. But I've got to admit, I was a little afraid of being the guy who didn't like time enough at last. I think my problem at this point was that the first half almost plays like a 50s sitcom. The way Helen shouts Henry, which to be fair is actually lifted from the short story too. The way that after picking up the pages of the book that Helen tore apart, Henry does this sort of face where he sticks out his bottom lip and pouts like a sulking child. And what was playing on my mind was the fact that I do have to admit that a lot of the more overtly comical episodes of the Twilight Zone. I don't remember particularly liking many of them and there's one coming up in particular that we'll get to but we'll speak about that when we get there. But once the second half of the episode starts to play out I think the reason for the first half being the way it is becomes absolutely clear you know. I guess that was the whole point of it that it was so light-hearted. If you're gonna have such a dark second half the fact that the first half was so light makes that second half so much darker. So Henry goes out into the destroyed bank. We don't quite get perhaps the more horrific moments that the short story has where Henry will find all these horrible things that were described as being once people or where he stands on something. Obviously this is 50s television, there's only so far that they could go. But we do have his boss's dead hand underneath his desk and as Henry goes out into the world outside you can just see that it's totally devastated. Now when we were talking about the episode Walking Distance, I said that I couldn't recall another Twilight Zone episode that had a middle narration by Rod Serling, but quite quickly we discover that one of the most famous episodes of all time has a middle narration by Rod Serling. Seconds, minutes, hours. They crawl by on hands and knees for Mr. Henry Bemis, who looks for a spark in the ashes of a dead world. A telephone connected to nothingness. A neighborhood bar, a 
movie, a baseball diamond, a hardware store. The mailbox of what was once his house and is now a rubble. They lie at his feet as battered monuments to what was but is no more. Helen! Helen! Where are you? Mr. Henry Bemis on an eight-hour tour of a graveyard. I think a lot of Twilight Zone fans will be familiar with The Twilight Zone Companion, the book by Mark Zickrey, because it was given away with the first season on DVD. Now in that, Mark Zickrey calls the short story that was originally written, he calls it cute, clever and forgettable. He also calls it mundane. He then goes on to say what Rod Serling did was to flesh it out, give it more character. It probably sounds a little harsh from Zickrey and... Well, I don't know, I wouldn't be so harsh on the short story myself. I do agree that what Rod Serling brought to it did elevate it, and I think the structure of it plays a big part. In the short story, it's mostly told in flashback, so you don't as much have that contrast between the regular life of Henry Bemis and the life after the bomb, so distinctly separated. And again, going back to the way the first half is so sitcom-like, it totally makes sense because it lulls the viewer into a false sense of security, I think. It makes you feel safe, and then it totally turns that on its head. It's the second half that gives the episode its classic status. You you have this the amazing look of the devastated city, which was filmed on a soundstage with a painted sky that was left over from a movie. And it gives the impression of just going on and on, and it's just a wonderful special effect that I think still holds up today. There are a couple of moments where Burgess Meredith walks towards the backdrop and you can perhaps see that the illusion is slightly lost because you can tell he's just a couple of foot away from a painted wall but you know still who cares it looks fantastic. And of course the other thing that gives the episode its classic status is the performance of Burgess Meredith. Now Burgess Meredith is a Twilight Zone mainstay, he appears four times in the original series, so we'll be catching up with him in the future, but he also goes on to appear in a great story in the Night Gallery that Chris discussed recently on the Night Gallery podcast called The Little Black Bag. So I guess Sailing must have obviously had a lot of respect for him to keep using him like that. At a Rod Sailing tribute, in 1984, at the Museum of Broadcasting, Burgess Meredith said of Rod Serling, he provided me with several of the best scripts I ever had the luck to perform. In one case, the role of Mr. Bemis, there isn't a fortnight goes by that I don't hear a compliment about it. Year after year, Rod used to have a par for me, every season, and every one of them was extraordinary. And even after Serling's death when they were making the Twilight Zone movie in the 80s, it was Burgess Meredith that they went to to continue the tradition of narration. And he's an interesting actor, Burgess Meredith, because he has that instantly recognisable voice and stature. So he's instantly recognisable as Burgess Meredith, but I don't recall a time when I haven't totally believed him in a role or, you know, I don't watch time enough at last and think, oh, it's the guy from Rocky, you know, he, he has that ability to make you totally be in the moment with him. The director, John Brahm, said of Burgess Meredith, it's so easy, he understands immediately, you respect him. Actually, one could say that everything moves right from the beginning without much talk. Burgess Meredith is in the class by himself. And I think he totally carries this last man on earth type of scenario, this tiny little man dwarfed by a huge devastated landscape. 
So he is left alone, Henry Bemis, and he does start to despair eventually. The loneliness starts to creep up on him and as he starts to crack up he gives this this speech that I that I just love and I just love the performance. It's quite alright. Uh, this is solitude. I, I've never had much solitude. I have enough to occupy my mind and my time. I have enough food and I, I I'm really very fortunate. Yes, I'm really extremely fortunate. Help, help, help. Someone, please. Someone, please. Please, someone. And his despair actually goes so far as to get to the point where he's contemplating ending it all, he finds a gun and he puts it to his head, but at the last moment he sees the public library. The episode was filmed on two sets, we've already talked about one of them. And this is the other main set, the steps of the library. They were generally used by a lot of movies where they would have the actors stand on the steps and then they would paint in a building behind them, you know, matter, matter shot in. And a good example of this is the film The Time Machine by George Powell. Now I feel almost silly describing the ending, you know, it, it's ingrained in all of us, but just to cap things off, I'll, I'll do it. Henry discovers the library and he's obviously delighted that he's gonna be able to read all of these books that he's never got round to reading. But then the unthinkable happens. January, February, March, April, May, this year, the next year, and the year after, and the year after that, and the year after that. Ah, and the best thing, the very best thing of all, is there's time now. There's all the time I need and all the time I want. Time, time, time. Ah, there's time enough at last. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was, was all the time I needed. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. So it's the ultimate ironic ending and the sight of Henry Bemis blindly pushing those last few shards of glass out of his glasses as he picks them up is is quite heartbreaking. So like I said earlier, why did Henry Bemis, a seemingly good man, deserve such a fate? As we saw in the episode The Escape Clause, it's usually a despicable character who gets their comeuppance by some ironic twist, but here it's someone who we think of as a good man who not only won't get to read all of those books now, but he'll be wandering the waistline mostly blind and you know, it could possibly be the end of him. It's a very cruel fate, but there are actually two schools of thought on this. The first being the most popular that I think most people share, and I would say I probably do too. And that's that 
Henry Bemis didn't actually deserve this fate and that's what makes it so powerful and tragic. I won't explain that any further, I'm just going to play a piece of feedback by a good friend of the show and a great podcaster in his own right, Mr Jim Moon. Hello Tom, and first off let me say thanks for the wonderful reading of Time Enough at Last. It was a real treat to enjoy this episode as a spoken word piece. Lovely stuff. And as for the episode itself, I'm not in the slightest bit surprised that this is one of the most well-loved and best-remembered of all the original Twilight Zones. I think it's fair to say that if you're the kind of viewer who enjoys the Twilight Zone, you probably enjoy a good book too. And this little tale is just such a nightmare for the book lover. Burgess Meredith puts in a fine turn as the harried Mr. Bemis who only wants to be left alone to read in peace. Something we can all relate to. And it's quite nice to see Mr. Meredith saying a role where he is henpecked and sympathetic rather than in one of the sinister or oily characters he often portrays. And I think it's this sense of sympathy we have for the character and his predicament and his ultimate fate that makes this so memorable. Pascal once said, the sum of evil in the world could greatly be reduced if men could only learn to sit quietly in their rooms. This is something Mr. Bemis has learnt well, and you can't help feeling that the world would be a better place if more people shared his love of books and reading. And that's why the twist in this one lingers in the mind so powerfully, I think, because Unlike a lot of uh, twist in the tale stories, where a character comes badly a cropper in an ironic fashion, often they're, well, shits, aren't they? And there's a certain kind of Schadenfreude in seeing their plight play out. However, for Mr. Bemis, you feel he's an innocent, he doesn't deserve this. And of course, most ironically of all, if more people in his world had followed his philosophy, or that of Pascal, well, the end of the world that we see played out in this episode would never have happened. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for the feedback, and thank you for the compliments about that reading. I think from a man like Jim, that's high praise indeed, because if you haven't heard his podcast, Hypnobobs, I would highly recommend it. Jim does a a lot of readings on that by the likes of H.P. Lovecraft and others and he just has this wonderful way of telling these stories so I would highly recommend it. You can find that at hypnogoria.com or look for Hypnobobs on iTunes. So as Jim says, time enough at last sees this image into our minds because it is so heartbreaking and that's what I'm inclined to agree with. What other way is there to see it but Douglas Broad in the book Rod Sailing and the Twilight Zone, the 50th anniversary tribute, has an interesting perspective. So I'm going to read a passage from that book, and Brody illustrates his point by comparing a character called Mr. Beavis from a future Twilight Zone episode that we'll get to. And he says, Towards the first season's end, Sailing would recreate Henry Beavis in Mr. Beavis, a pilot for a possible series not picked up by CBS. The opening narration, written and recited by Serling, posits the character in a positive light. 
and then he transcribes that opening which says in the parlance of the 20th century this is an oddball beaver's taste in literature connects him to bemis as we're told that dickens rates high and like bemis beavis is accident prone and a little vague yet we are meant to love beavis since he and bemis have so much in common why shouldn't we feel the same way about bemis it's not fair actually it is once we determine what this moral fable is about. Sailing conceived Henry Bemis not as an edgy protagonist to be admired, but a cautionary figure whose attitudes must be avoided if the viewer is to learn from this episode. Bemis and Beavis are not identical. Beavis incarnates the bumbling nerd hero, a man we root for while he attempts to survive among the suburban crowd. Bemis is the opposite, a little fellow, not only in size, but in spirit. Mean, cold, selfish. He's a villain, not the protagonist. Although he's an offbeat, appealing one, the key distinction is made clear by Sailing's description of Beavis. However out of sync with everyday reality, without him, without his warmth, his kindness, the world would be a considerably poorer place, albeit perhaps a little saner. Bemis's only passion is the printed page. He cares not. He cares not a whit for what sailing informs us is the most important, humanity and commitment to others. Eccentricity is not necessarily admirable, nor should it be disparaged. The ultimate test of one's worth is humanism. You know, that's a very interesting viewpoint, and I guess if that's Sailing's intent, which I don't know, I don't know if there's something out there that says it is, I mean this book was written with the cooperation of Carol Sailing, Rod Sailing's widow, so maybe, maybe that is what Sailing intended, but I guess I'll leave that to you to, to make up your own mind on that one. So thankfully, despite my apprehension in the first half, I will say that I do agree with this episode's classic status. I would personally still say that so far in the series The Lonely is my favourite episode but time enough at last I guess you can count me among the people who believe it to be a classic but believe it or not at the time it was released not everyone agreed. Now I'm taking these quotes from a book called The Twilight Zone Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grams Jr. An excellent book. And it says, on July 26, 1960, Sailing replied to a fan letter to J.E. Wolf of Knoxville, Tennessee, who felt offended by the production of Time Enough at Last, though she commented how beautiful the story was conceived. Sailing replied on October 26 with, We were attempting irony, and in the view of many of the audience, we created only sadism. The best laid plans of mice and men and Henry Bemis, the small man in the glasses who wanted nothing but time. Henry Bemis, now just a part of a smashed landscape, just a piece of the rubble, just a fragment of what man has needed to himself. Mr. Henry Bemis in the Twilight Zone. Did you ever watch the Twilight Zone? Oh, God. Remember the Twilight Zone with Burgess Meredith? 
Remember, he, he, he loved to read, and there was a nuclear war, and he had no friends anyway, and he was oh, down in the yeah, basement of the library. Yes, he was the last man he broke his glasses. Yeah. This thing freaked me out. When I was seven years old, I bought another pair of glasses just in case that would happen. Oh, those shows, they, they were so good. They were yeah. so scary. Yeah. Oh, great. Just one of the many times there that Time Enough at Last has been mentioned, homaged, and spoofed. Now, just to cap things off, I'll, I'll read a... A list of some of them out. This again comes from Twilight Zone, unlocking the door to a television classic. So, okay, the episode was spoofed in an episode of the Drew Carey Show, titled Y2K, You're Okay. On an episode of The Simpsons, titled Strong Arms of the Mar. An episode of Futurama, and also Family Guy in an episode called Wasted Talent. And also, The Adventures of Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius in an episode called Return of the Nanobots and also in the PC game Fallout Tactics I'm sure there's many more out there but uh, you know we're running a bit long and that gives us a little taster of I guess how far this episode has gone beyond just Twilight Zone fandom and kind of broke through to, to everyone else as well so I have to admit after spending a couple of weeks immersed in time enough at last i'm looking forward to getting on to the next episode and and seeing what it's got for us it is of course called perchance to dream so if you want to make any comments about that it's feedback at the twilight zone podcast.com and if you know if you want to send any audio feedback to emails are great but if you want to send audio feedback like jim did earlier same address mp3 that'd be great before i go i'd just like to mention something rather nice that happened recently in the latest issue of sfx magazine in the uk probably the premier science fiction magazine the twilight zone podcast and the night gallery podcasts were featured as podcast of the month which was great and thank you to our friend ben for alerting us to that um you can if you go to the twilightzonepodcast.com and scroll down a little bit you can see the article i've posted it up there so thanks to sfx magazine much appreciated and i guess that's all from me so as always just a reminder that also at the twilightzonepodcast.com is chris brown's podcast the night gallery podcast if you want to check out a little more opinion on rod sailing's work so I will see you next week with Perchance to Dream. Bye-bye.